How are you today? It's a few more days before Christmas. I hope that makes sense. <laughs> We're talking about heaven and earth. Last week, I made a very controversial remark about our final destination, and some of you have caught up on it. For transparency purposes, I grew up in a Baptist environment. Everything I knew was Baptist. In fact, I thought that there's only one brand of Christianity, Baptists. But when I stepped into the seminary, I realized that there are other versions of faith. There are Methodists and, and uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Orthodox. There are other versions of faith. Uh, one of my jobs being a scholar in the seminary is to be in the library to sort out some books. And I was able to see some of the books in the library that is not with Baptist orientation. And I realized that there's something amiss with what I was taught about being Baptist, about the final destination. But at that time, I cannot articulate what, what I was looking for. But I knew there's something more to this faith about our final destination. So the more I study the scriptures, the more I am convinced that our final destination is not heaven. Now, that may be shocking to you, but that's what they're explaining. And by heaven, we modern people define it as a disembodied, mystical place where we float like angels in the air to be with God forever. That is our definition of heaven. It's a common notion that when we die, we go straight to heaven as pure souls in an ethereal place with God. It sounds like Hinduism and Buddhism to me. That may sound good, but that is not what the Bible is teaching about our final destination. Again, our final destination is not heaven. You've got to check out Revelation 21 to be sure about it. Now, where did we get the idea? The Greeks invented the idea of, of this kind of heaven. We believe in heaven, by the way. But, but the Greeks had a de different definition of what heaven looks like. Well, Plato, if you know him, he taught that reality is made up of two things, the unseen and the seen. But he gives more importance to the unseen, the immaterial world, the ideal world, the spiritual world. Where he says that the real world, the real real, is not the physical, but the spiritual or the ideal world. So when Christians who are deep in the Platonic philosophy, formulated our beliefs. Some of the church fathers explained heaven, God, spirituality in the context of Platonic philosophy. So that dying is simply departing from this corrupt and physical world. And going to heaven means going to a mystical and ethereal place called heaven, heaven in a pure disembodied state. In the modern world, when we lose someone, we always say, he's in a much better place now. And by that much better place, we mean heaven. And by that heaven, we mean our final destination. I do not want to upset anyone if that is what you believe. I want us to, give a, I want us to have a better understanding of our final destination. Again, our final destination is not heaven. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something more. Let me read to you Revelation 21, starting from verse 1. Are you still there, by the way? Okay, I'm sorry. I got, I got so excited. All right, Revelation 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's talk about images. Now, this passage has a lot of images packed in here. So let me unpack this for you. Think about a story where it begins with once upon a time, and it ends with, and they lived happily ever after. Two book ends, the beginning and the end. So when John mentions the first heaven and the first earth, he was trying to point to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything that was and is right now, God created in the beginning. The new heaven and the new earth is the new heaven and the new earth. That is the conclusion of the story. That is that they lived happily ever after. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, by heavens we mean the celestial bodies, the stars, the moons, the galaxies, the whole universe. And by earth, it's self-explanatory. The place where we live in, the place where we pitch our tent, the place where you buy your house and lot the place where we have valleys and mountains and rivers and oceans and seas. This is the heavens and the earth, the former heavens and the earth. But when the ancients talk about the heavens, they, you know, they, these are not scientists. They, have, they don't have the telescope to see the Andromeda galaxy and the different galaxies. They, they don't talk like that. When they talk about heavens, they know that heaven is the abode of God and earth is the abode of man, as simple as that. When ancients talk about heaven, they knew that we cannot go to heaven because that is where God is found. That's why in the ancients, the sun, the moon, and the stars are worshipped as gods. Because they believe anything up there is God or gods, and anything down here is us, man, animals, and so on and so forth. Now, that's the reason why it's hard to say that heaven is our final destination because when we die, are we going up there? If you're in Australia, are you going up where? <laughs> it's down under. It's disorienting, to say the least. Now, the moment you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you get the impression that God is in the garden. See, if heaven is God's abode and earth is man's abode, why is God in the Garden of Eden? Again, the Garden of Eden is the intersect and overlap of heaven and earth. The Garden of Eden is where heaven and earth meet. That is the Garden of Eden. That's why God was there in the Garden of Eden. So when you read Adam and Eve in perfect harmony, having fellowship with God, I was in the Garden of Eden. But when they rebelled, they were expelled from the Garden. Because sin and rebellion cannot stay in the presence of God in Eden. It's the same thing that John said about Satan and the demons. They were cast out from heaven. Revelation chapter 12. The same thing with the Israelites. They were expelled or exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon because Jerusalem has the temple of God. The same concept here over and over again. To believe that God is in heaven is good. To believe that Jesus reigns in heaven is good. But to believe that Jesus reigns both the heaven and the earth is better. There's a reason why Jesus said, all authority has been given to me 
And by that all authority, he means the heaven and the earth. So when we pray, may your kingdom come, your will be done on heaven as it is on earth. It is both the heaven and the earth. That's why we also sing, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. This is not just some poetry. This is happening as we speak. Jesus is king for a reason. In other words, when we talk about our final destination, we shouldn't be talking about heaven, which is an ethereal place, a mystical place in another dimension or in a parallel universe. We should talk about the new heaven and the new earth. That is our final destination. Let me read to you verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, the former things is about the old world, the world in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the world that God created. That's the former things. The old heaven and earth is what we're, we're talking about here. So think about the old world that we are in right now that's subject to yearly hurricanes and increasing home insurance. Think about it. Think about the pandemic, the flu shots, and toothaches. Think about the food shortage. Oh, hang on. We cannot think about food shortage in here because you've, we've got a lot of food. Maybe think about uh, toilet paper and formula shortage, which happened this year and in beginning in 2022. But think about, think about this. This is the world that we live in. And this is what Apostle Paul has been explaining in Romans chapter 8. The whole created world is waiting for redemption, not just us, but also the whole world. The world is in a corrupt state right now. That's why people are saying we are having a global warning. We are having a catastrophe left and right because we are in this state. The world as well is waiting for its redemption. So when the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, this is the language of the new creation. This is the language of Jesus Christ saying, Behold, I am making all things new. So when the Bible said, In the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more mourning or crying or pain, this has nothing to do with your love life or your credit card debts. Are you still with me? I'm making it light. This refers to injustice and suffering in this world, not just death in general. It is God making all things right. This is like a, a pottery that broke. God is trying to fix everything right. The Jews have the word for this. They call it shalom. Shalom is not just peace. Shalom is wholeness, putting things right. The new heaven and the new earth is putting things right. That's why we always say, God is coming back and he's going to put everything right. But the question is, how will he do it? What will it look like in the new heaven and the new earth? The answer lies in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this is a very interesting phrase. It says, And the sea was no more. Why is this phrase here? And the sea was no more. Now, if this is Genesis 1 and 2, the old creation, what does it mean the sea was no more? Is it because Jesus encountered sea while he was still on earth, so he's speaking on the sea? Um, no. The ancients understood the sea as a metaphor for chaos and disorder. That's how they understood the sea. Sometimes it was also understood as a resting place for evil. 
In fact, when you read the book of Job, and you will read this creature called Leviathan or Rahab, not the Rahab in Joshua, but Rahab, the sea monster, this, the sea is a place of evil. They believe that the dead go to the sea at the bottom of the sea. And this is what you find in Genesis 1 and 2. Very interesting. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's like a sort of a summary of everything that God did. And beginning from verse 2, he said, the earth was without form and void. When God started creating before day one, the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Hmm, think about this, the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, everywhere you check these waters, this is pertaining to the sea. The form uh, without form and void, it's not about the blank paper without form and void. The form and void, or without form and void, talks about an absolute chaos, without order. Think about a construction field that's about to start the project. There's, there's tools, machineries, all the raw materials, and people. There's order, disorder, and chaos. But the moment they start building, do you know there's structure, there's order. So in the beginning, there was no order, there was just chaos. There was the sea, the representation of chaos and disorder. But in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more sea. Now, two things here, if you will see. In Genesis 1-2, it says there's darkness and there's waters, both representing evil and chaos, or evil and disorder. And in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be a condition of wholeness, of newness. It is when God said it is very good. See, on the last day, the seventh day, God made it holy because God rested from everything. It's going to be that all over again in the new heaven and new earth. Let me give you another a way to look at it. When God rescued Israel from Egypt, it was a picture of a man purchasing a slave from the market and giving the slave a new name or a new identity. So Israel was given a new identity. Their name became not just Hebrews, but Israel. They were also given a new place to live. That's the promised land. They were looking forward to it. And they were given also a purpose. So God said, you will be my people. I will be your God. And I will make you a holy nation and a royal priesthood, Exodus chapter 19. The, God is not, did not just convert them to a new religion and let them stay in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt all the way to the promised land. See, it's the same thing for us, followers of Jesus Christ. We are not just converts with new identities. Jesus freed us from the bondage of sin. We are no longer slaves of sin, Romans chapters 6 and 7. And the moment Israel stepped out of Egypt, having their new identity to live their purpose and their calling, to live in the promised land, they had to go through the Red Sea. It's very interesting. Because again, the Red Sea is a marker that represents chaos and disorder. At this point, it is a marker that represents the claim of Egypt. They must pass through the sea. And here lies the beauty of God's plan. He divided the sea. I mean, God could have done something else, but he divided the sea. You see, the new heaven and the new earth does not have the sea anymore. If you think about this metaphorically, sea is death, and we will all pass through the sea. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, according to Apostle Paul, we all passed 
through the sea, just like not just the Israelites, but we all did as we were baptized in the water. So the baptism when you go down to the water is the picture of your death. When you rise from the water is the picture of your resurrection. We are the tokens of the new heaven and the new earth. What will happen to us is what will happen to the new heaven and the new earth. The water baptism is a necessary drama that we all need to go through as a token of our faith. Verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now hang on. Isn't Jerusalem the city destroyed by Rome in AD 70? There's no Jerusalem walls right now, only one western wall. There's no temple right now in Jerusalem. And yet, John is saying, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. As if he's saying, pay attention, I'm going to repeat it three times. Let me say it again. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's not enough. He will dwell with them. It's not enough. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. John is saying, pay attention. This is important. You see, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they had to go through the wilderness. But the wilderness is not their final destination. The promised land is their final destination. They're looking forward to Jerusalem, where the temple is located. The temple is where God's presence is. That's the temple that Solomon built. It contains the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God. The Israelites did not just stop in the wilderness, although they were stopped for 40 years, but their final destination is not the wilderness, but the promised land. The promised land is where God rules. Again, the temple is the intersect between the heaven and the earth. Now notice here that the new Jerusalem, the temple, is where heaven and earth intersect. Again, it says in verse 3, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. God himself will dwell with them. See, the emphasis here is not on the location or the physical structure. The emphasis here is on the people, on the church. That is where God will dwell. See, every time the scripture would talk about the bride and groom, it always uses this metaphor for Christ and his church. The church is the bride and Christ is the groom. It's mentioned in Ephesians 5, in John chapter 14, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So when John talks about the new Jerusalem, he was not talking about the building of the third temple. The Jews, until today, are preparing to build the third temple. Some of the evangelical Christian churches are supporting the, the nation of Israel in the plan to rebuild the third temple of Jerusalem. You see, what John is saying here is that the new Jerusalem will be coming down from heaven. There will not be a third temple. It will be coming down from heaven. Rather, what John is talking about is that he's giving us an image that this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is the resurrected church. God will dwell not in a building but in his people, with his people. That means if you are part of the church, when you die, your final destination is not somewhere out there in the galaxy far, far away. That is Star Wars. Anyone seen Star Wars? That's the opening line. Our final destination is the new restored and redeemed heaven and earth, and we the people of God will be God's dwelling place, the new temple. That is our final destination. 
Now, this is explained by Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old that passed away, behold, the new has come. The same thing. We are tokens of the new creation, of the new heaven and earth. 1 Corinthians 6.19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you, have, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Which means is that God has a claim on our physical bodies because one day he will resurrect us a new body, a body that is not subject to mourning, to crying, and to pain, where sickness and death is no longer part of reality. Are you longing for the day when you will come to the new heaven and the new earth where sickness and death is no longer part of reality? I am anticipating and I'm excited for this new heaven and earth where I don't have to exercise to stay fit or I don't have to watch my diet or I don't, I'm not worried about having white hairs or better yet, losing hairs. Uh, <laughs> amen. <laughs> I long for the day. <laughs> I also long for that day. And John is trying to paint them a picture of our final destination so that even though they suffer at the moment in the first century context, they still focus on the hope and promise of Jesus Christ. There was a time when I was still single and I decided to spend my Christmas outside the country. I was in Japan. It was winter. It was cold. Uh, there were plenty of people who cannot speak English, but the streets are full of lights and they're uh, playing Christmas carols. And so one day I was walking the streets and looking at the Christmas lights. I felt a deep sense of loneliness. And I realized I was missing home and everything that it represents. And it stayed there, that, that feeling, the whole duration of my vacation. So when I get back, the moment I step out of the plane and reach the Philippine airport, I immediately, the feeling of loneliness was gone. And I realized that I don't really miss home. I just missed the idea of home. The moment I felt that humidity in the air, the slow-moving traffic, and the possibility that my taxi driver is messing with the meter, I realized I wasn't really missing home. I was missing the idea of rest and home. When Jesus talked about home to his disciples, it was the last night, Thursday night, the next day he will be executed on the cross. He was talking to them about home. This is what he said. John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be also. And you know the way to, to where I am going. Now, when Jesus was talking about in my father's house, he was not talking about Joseph, his father. He was not even talking about Nazareth, where he grew up. He was talking about the new heaven and the new earth. He was talking about a different kind of place. Now, you know what happened to Jesus and his disciples. They were going around the country for three years. And after three years, they finally understood better what it means to miss home. This is like, you know, Buble singing, I want to go home. So the disciples were missing home, and Jesus was talking to them about going home. 
And what's interesting is that when he said, in my father's house, there are many rooms, Jesus was giving them a figurative, a metaphor for God's house. He was not talking about the temple. He was talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Here's the thing. If going home is where the father is and home is not in heaven, Revelation 21 verse 3 makes more sense. He said, And I heard the loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is not heaven, is with man. Did you see that? The dwelling place of God is not in heaven, but with man. The dwelling place of God. He intends to pitch his tent, to tabernacle, to dwell among his people. Verse 2, it says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Jerusalem is the metaphor for the church who has received the resurrected body out of heaven. God will soon make his final home with us. Not there, but in here. When Jesus comes back, there will be also a great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, 11 to 13. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, for his presence, earth and sky fled away. See that? Genesis 1, earth and sky, or the heaven and earth. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea, again, was mentioned, gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were with them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they have done. This is scary, but this is what will happen when Jesus comes back to earth. There will be two books, or more than two books, that will be opened. For sure, the book of life. Some of us think that, that Apostle Peter is the one holding the book of life with the rooster on his side. And every time that your name is mentioned, the rooster crows, crows. Okay? That's not true. There's a book of life, and the one that holds the keys to the book of life is Jesus Christ. The names of the people written in the book of life are those people who claim to follow Jesus. In the kingdom of God, there are no bystanders, only followers. It's either you follow Jesus or you're not. The other one, the other books, also known as the other books, will contain the names and everything that the people whose names are in it the, and what they, whatever they think, they said, and did will be recorded in those books. Now, when I was teaching in the Philippines, I'm a teacher, by the way, also. So when I was teaching in the Philippines, one of my students asked me, in the case of what if they change their names, will their, the book of life reflect the new name or the old name? Will the book of life reflect their legal name or their preferred name? See, this is the problem with making changes in our identity. I think no matter how much we color our hair or change the pigment of our skin or do some modifications in our bodies, God knows who we really are. God has no dementia. He's the one who created us. He will not be confused as to how or who we identify. See, when we face God on judgment days, those names that's written in the book of life will not be judged according to what we did. That's not what the Bible said. They will be judged according to what Jesus already accomplished on the cross. It's called atonement. It's explained in the story of Passover. 
But those whose names are not written in the book of life, their names will be written on the other set of books, the book of judgment. And whatever they did, they thought, and they said are recorded in that book. And according to John, they will be judged according to what they have done. Now, that's, that's very scary. Look at verse 8, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, think of murderers. Every time I, th I read about murderers, I'm thinking of Nicholas Cruz. You know Nicholas Cruz. He's from here. He was just sentenced to multiple life sentences. He killed at least 17 people. And I'm thinking of those who support and did abortion. As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, and I hope that does not include us, their portion will be in the lake. Do not look at your husbands. Their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's scary. But you may say, Pastor, I'm not one of those things. I'm not in the list. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm not a daughter. Now, let's be clear on this one. The first three that is mentioned, the cowardly, the faithless, and the detestable, do not refer to unbelievers. They refer to those who claim to follow Jesus but compromise their faith. See, in chapter 2 of Revelation, there are people whom God said, you're not cold, you're not hot, you're lukewarm, and God will spit them out. They're practically useless. These are people who compromise their faith. See, you cannot worship Jesus and Caesar at the same time. You cannot give your allegiance to Jesus and Caesar, the emperor, at the same time. You've got to choose. But there are people, because of convenience, they would rather do both. And so these three, that's why John would use the three, the faithless, the detestable, and the cowardly, to be these people. See, in the context of Revelation in the first century, there are only followers. There are no bystanders. In the kingdom of God, there are only followers. There are no bystanders. There are no bystanders in the kingdom of God because one cannot follow Jesus and Caesar at the same time. Allegiance is, in the first century, at the premium. And our faith and our passion are measured by an active member being an active member of the community of faith. Now, here's the logic. If you're faithful, according to the first century, you will be persecuted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's very easy. If you are faithful, you will be persecuted. You can only be persecuted if you're an active member of the community of faith, which means the public knows who you are. The public knows you're a Christian. The public knows... Who you believe, that means you talk like a Christian, you walk like a Christian, you live like a Christian. On the other hand, if you are not persecuted in the first century, that means you are sleeping with the enemy. That's why John calls you cowards, faithless, detestable. When Jesus talks about blessed are the meek, it wasn't about being quiet and without confidence. Being meek is about being a minority without a voice with no, no real standing in society, sometimes branded as enemies of the states. And yet we are commanded not to retaliate. That's why we are meek, 
because we don't retaliate even when we are persecuted and given injustice. Our convictions and our righteousness about justice, about God, our opinions and our beliefs threaten the world so that they will do all means possible to suppress us and cancel our opinions about the truth. See, we Christians today, we are mocked when we talk about our faith in God. We are called old-fashioned when we talk about marriages between a man and a woman. We're called bigot when we try to save babies from abortion. We're called even racist and transphobic when we do not support their lifestyle. You see, church, we are called witnesses for a reason. Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. We are called witnesses for a reason. And it's not just a title. It's a job description for all Christians. You see, here's what I think. It's Christmas season. And the world cannot deny this fact. It's Christmas lights everywhere. The carols are everywhere. I think the best pushback, the best way to witness for Jesus, for those who do not believe, is to greet them Merry Christmas. What can they say? I don't like your Christmas. Of course not. When you tell them Merry Christmas, you're witnessing your faith. I think that's the best way, without retaliation, to spread the love of Jesus Christ. Merry Christmas. See, we are witnesses because we have experience. We have a first-hand experience of a real-life transformation. And this is the message of John. The message of John then is the same message of John now. Be faithful and you will be rewarded. But know that when you remain faithful, there will be pushbacks. It won't be easy. But hang tight. Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we long for you, that we long to be home. All of us have this idea of home. But you have given us a clearer image of what home will be like with you here in the new heaven and the new earth. Father, I pray that as we anticipate your coming and as this Christmas season that we are in right now, as we enjoy this, I pray, Father, that you will give us the audacity and the love and the care and the concern for people who have not known Jesus Christ yet, for people who does not follow Jesus Christ yet. Allow us, Father, to become your witnesses, your, your mouth and your hands to those people who need you. In Jesus' name we pray.